0: And to take the Lord's Supper, and these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening.
1: Um,
0: tonight's scripture reading comes from the Second Book of Samuel. Samuel, excuse me. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 22. Take a second to turn there. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are extras in your views in front of you. That's the second book of Samuel, uh, chapter 7, lines 1 through 22. <clears throat> when you're ready, please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Now when the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, see now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in the tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about, wherever I have moved about among the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that, so that they may live in their own place, and be disturbed no more, and evildoers shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he commits inequity, well, sorry, I will punish him with the rods of his mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. May this be instruction for the people, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness so that your servant may know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is no one like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: All right, good evening, we are going through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel this fall, and this evening uh, you get to be here for the most important uh, chapter in the story of the life of David, um, pretty much agreed upon by all commentators and theologians. Uh, one great theologian, Walter Brueggemann, said that it is the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. So the whole book of 1st and 2nd Samuel was kind of written around this. This this is the most dramatic event. And it's kind of funny to call it an event because the event is really David is asleep during it. It's, it's happening at night uh, while David is, is just uh, slumbering. And that's kind of, that's an important part of this whole story. A very important part. Because the, the point is that David does absolutely nothing to have all this come upon him. That's really the whole point of the sermon. That David is just waiting Uh, And God does all of the work while he's asleep. And yet the event is so seminal to Jewish self-understanding that uh, another commentary, uh, Robert Bergen, says this this chapter is the nucleus around which the whole message of hope proclaimed by the entire Hebrew prophet tradition of later generations were built. So when, when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel continue to look for hope in the exile when there is no hope, it is this that they're going back to. And if you read Psalm 89, the 89th Psalm, the same thing happens. It's almost uh, identical wording in Psalm 89. This, this is a, a huge idea uh, for the Jewish mind. It's called the Davidic covenant. Uh, you have the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant, the main three Old Testament covenants. And they all go together. They're all really one great big promise uh, that God says to Israel, I will be your God and you're going to be my people And I'm going to bring a king from among you. And that's what this is all about, the the kingship. Um, Verse 13 would be the central verse of this central chapter. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Obviously, the future tense, this is not David he's talking about. This is not even Solomon, the son of David. It's not even the son of Solomon. It's, It's some future king. God is saying, I will establish the throne of that king forever, forever and ever. And what God was telling Israel was that my main project on planet Earth from this point forward is to raise up among you Jewish people a a, a king who would be um, the perfect ruler of the world that would make blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He's going to be a king of love. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. So this king will bear in himself love and will give that love to the world. If you look at the highest priorities of this king, they come from his own story. They come from the story of David. Uh, verse 1, to give rest to people from their enemies. Verse 6, to bring people out of slavery, as God did for Egypt, for Israel out of Egypt. To remain with the people wherever they go. Verse 7, to lift people out of nothingness. So in, in the story, that's in verse 8, you see, uh, you see already the, the main characteristics of this king. Uh, This king is going to not be like Caesar, who reclines on a couch and uh, eats grapes and is fanned by his servants with uh, palm branches. That picture of a king is not the picture here at all. Rather, it's more like uh, Aragorn, if you know Lord of the Rings, who is passing through the paths of the dead or or attacking an Asgul or something like that, Saving his comrades. It's that. So when you're thinking about this king, do not think about the former, but the latter. And uh, if you don't know who Aragorn is, just think about a king that is fighting and laying down his life uh, for his people. That's this kind of king. In other words, this is a servant kind of king. Verse 22 says, there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. And that's because this God is going to be a servant kind of God. And the entire story is about God saying, you're not going to serve me. I'm going to serve you. And uh, it's, a, it's a major idea of the whole Bible. And, and God repeats it so often because we always think that God wants us to be like his minions or his slaves, his servants. And that he's, he's mostly up there waiting for us to serve him and obey him. And that's our main job is to do those things. And God has to always remind us, no, I serve you. And you wait for me. That's exactly what's going on with David. He's just sitting there asleep while this greatest event in his life is happening. I serve you, God says. And, and yes, you respond with gratitude, but mostly you just wait for me. And you receive my gifts. And so I want to look at the, this verse. Really, in, in Isaiah 64, kind of unpacks the whole thing. Uh, Isaiah says, from of old, no eye has seen nor perceived by the ear, no one has heard of a God like you, who works for those who wait for him. Who works for those who wait for him. Now if you go back to verse 22, there is none like you, there is no God beside you. Isaiah is picking up on that. Paul's going to pick up on that. We're going to see that at the end. But the main idea is, uh, who could even imagine? Like what human imagines a God like this? Who serves people. Who gets down below them and washes their feet. Like, like, like a slave does. That's the way God compares himself. So I want to look at two things. First, that he works for us. And then second, that we wait for him. So the, the context here is that pretty much at this point, David has everything going for him that he wants. He, uh, he lives in a, in a cedar palace, verse 1. So he's, he's got his kingdom unified. He has Jerusalem established. We saw that last week. He has the ark now in Jerusalem. Everything is going well, and he's living in a cedar palace. And it says in verse 1 that God has given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. So he's feeling really good. Uh, It doesn't really get any better than this. I don't know if you remember those commercials for old Milwaukee. Whenever I hear that phrase, I still think about those commercials. There's uh, there's some guys like pike fishing in Minnesota, or they're fly fishing in Wyoming, or airboating in the Everglades. And at the end of the day, they end up around a campfire and they're kind of leaning back and they say boys, it don't get any better than this and they drink their, their old Milwaukee and uh, for whatever reason, I think about those commercials all the time and um, when I think about Nathan and David here sitting around in the Cedar Palace, you know, with their heels kicked up and they got some Great Danes around them, a big roaring fire and they're like, it doesn't get any better than this. we got the Cedar Palace we got the Ark and the capital city. that There's rest from our enemies. Everything's going perfectly. And then David has this thought uh, where he's like, you know, I'm living the high life right now and God is like down in this little tent in the middle of the city. I don't feel like it's right for my house to be bigger than his house. So, you know, Nathan, why don't we build God a house that is maybe equal to our own? You know, at least as big as the Cedar Palace we have here. And Nathan's like, you're the boss. Verse 3, go Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And you would think that God would be very pleased with this, that this is a noble gesture. And that, of course, uh, any deity wants uh, the servants of that deity to build uh, said deity, a house or a palace or some kind of temple. And uh, yet, in this dream, God comes to Nathan that night and he says, tell my servant David My sleeping servant, David, would you build me a house to dwell in? And I can almost hear, you know, laughter in in God's voice. Would you build me a house? It's like if I went and offered guitar lessons to Eric Clapton. He was like, are you saying you want to teach me how to play guitar? I feel like God is saying to David, um, I think you've got this whole thing reversed about who serves who. And he lo- I love how he says in verse 7, Did I ever speak a word to any uh, Israelite about needing a house? Uh, did I ever ask anyone, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? And I think God is saying, you know, let's, let's go back and remember about our relationship. You know who, who helped who when you were slaves in Israel? And, and uh, did I call out uh, for your help at the Red Sea? And did I... Was I in need of you at the Jordan River and in Jericho? You know, who was the one that needed help there? And I think God is trying to say, you know, I am not like uh, Baal or Shemosh or Molech or Ra or any of the gods of the surrounding nations. No, no one has ever conceived of a God like me. The way you humans think of gods is completely wrong because I don't need to be sacrificed to, I don't need to be appeased, I don't need your children to die in in my uh service it's not like that with me at all I, I rather i have been with you wherever you went verse nine i cut off your enemies from before you i made you a great name i will appoint a place for my people israel and plant them i will give you rest from your enemies and uh and you know i read verse nine and ten there and you just look at that list where god is telling him all the things he did and i still think with my warped view of god i still think you know is that like a guilt trip where uh, I say, you know, when I'm really upset with my, my children, they, haven't, they won't take their plate in. Uh, maybe they, they walk up, they get up from the table and just walk away and they don't do anything to clean their plate. And uh, we're like, you know, we cook your food, we wash your dishes, we clean your clothes, we pack your lunches. And you can't even take your measly plate into the kitchen. And, and you read that when God is giving that list to David and you almost feel like he's kind of putting this guilt uh, like a bad mom or dad would do. And that's really bad parenting, by the way. Um, you, don't, well, you don't guilt trip your children into serving you. Uh, even though we do that, we try not to do that. There was a song by uh, Keith Green, who was an artist that, I, that at the time I really liked a lot. You might know Keith Green. Uh, he died in a plane crash. But he was a really, a really famous Christian, one of the very first Christian artists. And when I first heard him, I was a young Christian, very zealous. I would say Legalistic. And one line that I love from his song was Jesus rose from the dead and you can't even get out of bed. And for some reason, I thought that was really motivating and like it stirred my soul. You know, he rose from the dead and you're you're a lazy uh, bum sleeping till noon. Get out of bed and serve him. And uh, and that's really bad theology. And that's not that's not what's going on right here in this passage. Um, God is saying rather I love you and I love to serve you. And I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. It's more like the workers at Chick-fil-A, whenever you say thank you or something like that, what do they say? They say, my pleasure. And God really means it when he says that. He actually, truly takes great pleasure, great delight in knowing who you are down to the smallest detail and serving you. And serving you in a way that will help you. Um, I usually don't like shopping. I don't like really buying anything very much that's why i use amazon a lot but when i was first falling in love uh, i i absolutely loved shopping uh for my girlfriend i was that was one of the few times in my life i loved picking out like a birthday gift or an anniversary gift or a christmas gift because of the love there and i think we've got to see god more through the eyes of someone who's a lover that studies our souls knows what we like and gives things to us that are good And he doesn't use guilt trips, and he's not stingy. He's not nitpicking. I had a teacher who um, was my engineering professor at NC State, and uh, he would give an exam and it would have five boxes. Uh, They'd have a problem, and then underneath that problem would have a box, and another problem, always five, five problems, very complicated, uh, structural engineering problems, and then five boxes. And in that box, you wrote down one number. And he said, I don't care about any work that you do, you know, do that on the side and pencil. I want to see the number in that box. And if it doesn't have the right number of, uh, of significant digits and the right units and the exactly correct number, no partial credit. And we would complain and say like, what about just look at our work and at least if you can see the mistake made, you know, give us, like that was very common among professors. And he said, you know, when you build a building and you just barely get it wrong and it falls, you don't get any partial credit for that. So I'm not going to give you any partial credit either. And we hated this guy. Dr. Eli was his name. Uh, we absolutely hated him. And uh, and, and the, I mention that because, because sometimes I think that God is like that. Just stingy and enjoying um, looking over our shoulder and uh, like a frightening parent would be. You know, who might scream at you at any second or a boss who you're scared of annoying. And you don't even want to text if you feel like, you know, uh, she or he is going to be mad at you. And you, you kind of refrain from even interacting with him. And yet so much of the Bible is God just saying, look what I've done for you. Look what I'm doing for you right now. And look what I'm going to do for you. And, and again, he's not boasting. Uh, he's not... Um, like a bad parent who's boasting about their child-rearing philosophy, another parent, he's not like that at all. He's not showing off in any way. He just takes enormous pleasure and pride in serving you and loving you and caring for you. And that's clearly what's going on in this passage right here. He's telling David that. You've got this whole thing reversed. And he, when he sees a happy soul uh, that he has redeemed and is making more happy and more joyous and more capable of glory and love... He just looks at that and is so proud of that. He takes such pride in that. At Thanksgiving, if you ever watch the, the Macy's Day parade, um, right after that parade, there's a, there's a show that comes on. And we got hooked in because we'd always finished watching the parade when our children were little. And then this show comes on right after that. And it's called the, uh, the Westminster Dog Show. I don't know. Parker and I watch that show every year. Um, probably none, none of you have ever seen that show. but... Uh, it's a fascinating show, partly because the... Uh, have you ever seen Best in Show, like that spoof of this show? That's what the show is really like. And these, these dog owners take incredible pride in these animals as they, uh, they, they, they run them around, and sometimes not so elegantly in the case of the owner, but the dog is like running around this track, and they put them on a podium, and, uh, and they show their teeth for some reason and get them to sit up really straight. And the pride that the owners take in the dogs looking good and they being happy and smiling is, uh, is actually really moving when you think about it, this little tiny creature that they spend so much effort to love. And, uh, they take such pride in that love. And I think that it makes God, um, just absolutely thrilled to care for you. Well, and, um, I know that, uh, our, our daughter's about to go off to college. And I know when she comes back for that first Christmas break, it's going to be so fun to like have made her best favorite foods and make her you know, room <clears throat> clean the way my mom did for us. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the way that God just takes so much care and working for us. And, and he's saying that to David here. I do all these things. I want you to know these things I do. Not to guilt you, but just so that you would know. So that's the first point. The, the second point is that we... Need to wait for him. And our job is to be uh, grateful for what he's done for us and be waiting, be always in a posture of waiting and expectancy that he's going to keep serving us. He's not going to stop doing that. That there's no reason he would suddenly shift, uh, like, you know, he's got borderline personality or something, and just suddenly shift and start treating us in a terrible way. Why would we think that? We just need to continue to wait for him um, as he works for us. Again, The the verse in Isaiah um, 64.4, no one has ever heard of or perceived or even imagined a God like you who works for those who wait for him. So look at verse 18. King David sat before the Lord after he heard the vision and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And that's just a beautiful picture of Almost in a childlike way. I thought about Jesus in the temple when he was a teenager. In his father's house. How much he loved being in the temple. And David is just cross-legged before the ark here. Just beholding. Um, obviously he can't, he can't actually be in the same uh, room with the ark. He can't see the ark. He can't see the glory above the ark. We talked about that last week. Uh, but he is, he is basking in the presence of God. In, in, the, in the nearness to the ark. The ark of the covenant. And, uh, and he says, who am I? And what is my house, the house of Jesse, this insignificant Bethlehemite house in the middle of nowhere? Who are we? My little plan that you would bring me this far, that you would make me the king, and now that you would promise me these things. And I think that probably the most important thing that I do every day is to get myself into that state of mind. If I can get there, Uh, who am I that you have brought me thus far? It's a very, very healthy place to be. And the people around you will never regret the fact that you get yourself into that state. And the more more fully human I am, the more I'm in that state of uh, just extreme awareness of God's incredible, lavish care for me. I actually carry around with me notes. Um, to try to rem- remind me of that every day. Uh, not always successfully, but I try really hard. Because I think when you're, when you're massively grateful, uh, then you're most fully alive. And, you know, I've seen people in the hospital uh, where you would think there's no way they could ever be happy. Some tragedies just happen to them, and sometimes they are just filled with gratitude in those places to the point of tears. And uh, And the word gratitude doesn't really quite do it justice. I looked up synonyms for gratitude. They're pretty weak. Uh, Thankfulness, appreciativeness is a terrible way of thinking about David here. Responsiveness. It's more like amazement. Being blown away, being thrilled, being astonished, being exhilarated. I cannot believe that this is my life. I mean, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart is like the best picture of this. Um, Just about the amazement that he has. He's, He's about to kill himself. And then he is shown what an amazing, what a wonderful life that he has. I can't believe what you've given me. And verse 19 is um, not well translated, I have to say, in the ESV. The translation that Molly read uh, is is not the best for this verse. Uh, The New International Version says in verse 19, David, David asks God, is this your usual way of dealing with people? Like, are you this good to everyone? Because it seems impossible to me that you could be this good. It seems unfair that you could treat me this well. Are you really treating everyone this well? And it's just a beautiful thing to think. If a person's ever thinking that, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing place to be. Where you wonder if God could possibly... It's like the opposite of that comparison of feeling really bad about yourself. or things are unfair, life is so unfair. This is exactly the opposite of it. I have a um, notification that popped up on my phone. It might be the new operating system or something, but it pops up and it says, you have memories. <laughs> I was like, yes I do. And what, what does that mean on this notification? So I <clears throat> clicked on it, slid it to the right, and up, uh, up pops a slideshow of um, pictures from exactly one year ago to that date. And I thought it was really gimmicky and foolish, but like so many things, on a phone, it kind of grabbed me, so I went ahead and hit the slideshow, and it starts playing this dramatic music. I think it would be really cool if they could figure out the music you listened to at that time. I think they could probably figure this out and then play those songs. But instead, they play some other dramatic music they have, and it shows you um, all these pictures from a year ago. And I did actually start crying. It was uh, it was it really hit me. And when you when you wait on God, you're just thinking. Um, you know, that's the way you treated me last year. Those things have to me back then, And I just trust I'm waiting on you to continue to bring these things into my life. Uh, when I went to see The Force Awakens a few years ago, I was so excited because this I love Star Wars so much. And I knew, you know, the critics had said it was going to be a good movie. I knew that it would be a good movie. I had already loved what he, Lucas had done in the past, and I figured Disney couldn't mess it up too much. So I... I went there with with great expectations and excitement and indeed uh, it really was fulfilling and I just feel like if you know that the God works this way in the past, you know he's going to work this way in the future and in verse 19 exactly what David says, as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign God, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and so even if things feel really bad in your life right now and I this sermon could be hard for someone who feels like their life is absolutely terrible right now. But I think this is a comfort right here that, that you know that, it, that God's heart, uh, in verse 21, it is according to your heart to bring about all this greatness. That God's heart is always uh, to bless. You know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, to give you a future. That's always God's heart. Even if things are hard right now, uh, David would still be right. As if this were not enough in your sight, you've also spoken about the future. And so when I look back in my past uh, and the great things that have happened to me, um, you know, going to college at Wake Forest, people I met there, the memories I made there, growing up going to Pauley's Island, South Carolina on family vacations, meeting Margie in London, uh, Princeton Seminary, where I met all these incredible friends, and planting a church and uh, being a pastor, which I love so much. Those are not like outliers or data points that are way out here. The, those are, that's the, that's the heart, that's the cluster of where all the data is located. And so um, if you think about your best memories right now, uh, those are according to God's deepest purposes. That is according to his heart. And he knows everything about you, what you need, what you love. And he loves to work for you. And this whole thing kind of leaves David a bit speechless in verse 20. It's almost like a broken sentence in Hebrew. What what more can David say to you? He even addresses himself in the third person. What what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. It's like he's disoriented. And he's kind of lost his balance. He's lost his grip a little bit. Because, again... Isaiah 64.4. What kind of God is there out there that anyone's ever dreamed of that would do these things? And I think Isaiah was probably a little speechless when he wrote that. Because he knew what God had already done for Israel and he figured that because of this promise of 2 Samuel 7, there's a lot more to come. It's a lot better than that. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, read Isaiah... Who was reading about David, and this is now about a thousand years after David, and Paul realizes that what David was talking about and what Isaiah was talking about, <clears throat> he had just experienced when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so one of his very earliest letters, Paul writes this: He says in 1 Corinthians 2:9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for us. And he's clearly referring to Isaiah 64.4, which refers back to 2 Samuel 7. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for us. <clears throat> and I think Paul was saying, you know, God had something up his sleeve when he revealed all that to Isaiah. There was this huge surprise gift that God had worked on for all those hundreds of years waiting to uncover and uh, Isaiah didn't know quite what it was, what God was working, preparing for those who would wait for him. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, listen to what Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And that's what 2 Samuel 7 was pointing to. That's what Isaiah 64, 4, didn't know about, but was thinking about and referencing. That's what Paul had seen. You know, what kind of God is there like this? That slaves away. He didn't come to earth to be served. I mean, what God, what punitive God that a human would imagine would not come here and be served? You'd come here, you'd build a big palace, you'd create a big army to serve you, and you would sit there and let them do all the work. God comes to be a human, and he says, uh, I did not come here to be served by any of you disciples. This is when they're debating about who's the greatest. And he's like, that's not the way of me and my people. Uh, I did not come here to be served, but to serve, in fact, serve so much, serve so hard for you, work so tirelessly for you, that I'm going to, again, not guilt. Yeah, the way I said that even sounded like guilt. I am going to ransom you. I'm going to pay the, the price. You know, again, he didn't come to have his nails done or his feet washed. Uh, God came to wash our feet and uh, to have nails driven into his hands and his feet. I mean, Peter couldn't believe it when Jesus washed his feet. Uh, he, he couldn't even take it. He had to start trying to wash Jesus' feet. And, uh, and Jesus said, no. I'm here to ransom you. I'm here to work for you, uh, to serve you, to clean you from your sin. And his masterpiece is, uh, is this meal right here. I think Jesus... Um,